Chapter 23 Tibereth, the heart center of Christ. Dionysus, is that really you? The child in the boat was the same boy I journeyed with through the underworld, but why didn't he say anything? I was waiting to see if you noticed. He leaned over to hug me. What in the world are you doing here? Well, it turns out I had some reshaping to do. And isn't it peculiar how this moment holds the remedy that makes us brand new? Turns out I'm swell, just as great as I always was, not hiding anything from anyone, because everything we go through is creation's expression of God's abundant love, said Dionysus. But my boy, what happened to your feet? You were a satyr before, but now you're half the size. You're so small and petite. How could I describe it? when there's nothing your soul doesn't already know. Didn't I tell you about the magic of the grapevine and how all life is a manifestation of the queen's holy code, he said? Oh, Dionysus, what would I do without you? Always surprising me with fascinating observations. Just think of all the mysterious moments we've been through. Believe it or not, you and I have never been apart. This sphere is the central place that connects us to all others, because here we are, at the center of our heart, said Dionysus. The heart? Now what do you mean? We are art within God's heart, since art is a creative interpretation of the illusion. Didn't they tell you that form is emptiness and emptiness is form? Hopefully that helps clear up the confusion, said Dionysus. What now? Can you say that one more time? I didn't hear anything beyond the rhythm of these rhymes. Om gatte gatte, paragatte, parasamgatte, bodhisvaha, said Dionysus. Say what? That's from Ma. Don't you remember? Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. That's how I survived the attack from the Titans the day I was dismembered, said Dionysus. At once the boy was torn to pieces before my eyes. This mysterious dream was too much to handle when I fell to my knees and began to weep and cry. Dionysus was destroyed. His body was severed apart. Both hands and feet were ripped off from his torso when I reached down to hold what was left of little Dionysus's raw and bleeding heart. Oh, there was such power in him. And now Dionysus smiled so big at the source of his glowing soul. Looking in his eyes, I saw the lion named Kether sprouting from his essence even though he'd been bleeding all over, yet not an ounce of his heart was less than whole. Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. There is nothing we will ever lose, because our journey continues on while our soul transforms. My father gave me a body, but that body was not mine. We are spiritual beings having a human experience, because the source is God's potential from which we are all designed. Don't cry for what appears to be pain. The soul transcends pain that cruelty brings, for I am the sacrificed one, the Father's Son, known as Christ the King, he said. His spirit touched the ankh in my heart, then a memory began sprouting like a seed. There I watched the man named Christ fall before me, carrying the cross section of a tree. A huge crowd had gathered around him, but I found despair in this passion of Christ. Then this man willingly rose up to meet his crucifixion and atoned for humanity's sins as the ultimate sacrifice. I was so confused and scared. As I gathered up the swords, I realized there were now seven blades. Running for my life, 
Soldiers chased after me, claiming that Jesus and all his friends would pay. Soon those soldiers caught me, and they took hold of my seven swords and forced me to look. There I saw two other criminals being executed as they crucified both crooks. Panicking in horror, how could anyone watch this terror? Now Jesus fell again. Oh, how this suffering was too great for one man to bear. But his heart was glowing. He had a halo shining over his head. I wept in agony as I looked through the crowd when I saw Mother Mary and I understood that her son would soon be dead. I wanted to run to her and blindfold her eyes. The mother should not watch what was about to take place. Then the soldiers thrust my swords into the ground around her when I realized I'd now collected a total of eight. The crowd mocked Jesus. Oh, how low could the human man devolve? Jesus was not a criminal or a thief. Rather, he was the only sane person left who could help the world's sins be absolved. Forgiveness, I begged. Oh, please forgive our terrible ways. And so Christ fell a third time when dark clouds covered the sky to hide all of the sun's rays. Thunder began to growl before the sky started to cry. Then the soldiers nailed him to the tree and after three hours, I watched them thrust a spear into his side. After Jesus took his last breath, I watched the sun go black. This was the greatest tragedy made by man, for it was we who killed the king of the Jews, and there was no going back. After everyone left, they threw me in a room and hung nine swords over my bed. I stayed awake three nights, reliving the horrors, unable to grasp that Jesus, our king, was crucified and dead. After the third day, I was insane and ran from the nine swords in my room. I sprinted to Christ's grave when the stone had been removed, and all that was left was blood-soaked robes waiting in his tomb. In disbelief and awe, the twelve apostles gathered near, and when all of us were back together, we watched Jesus reappear. He stood before us as a living man. Jesus was reborn and freed from the burden of that heavy cross and whatever weight he carried was an expression of all the truth that this mad community had lost. But how could one man bear it? How could one human ever pay such a heavy price? And then Jesus' spirit came forward to tap the ankh in my heart when he forgave us for the time we took his life. His form changed again, and now he appeared with a green facade. Dressed up as an Egyptian, he symbolized life, death, and rebirth as this man was also the Son of God. Who are you and what in the world is happening? I am Osiris, the one who rose from the dead. I arrived roughly 2,400 years before Christ ever shared his blood and broke the bread. He paused in silence for a great while looking into my eyes before Osiris continued and said, What I see happening in the world is a pattern like how a bubble pops. The pressure that builds up signifies a moment in this earthly world before the next eon drops. Any mortal who claims to know what's right is only hiding behind that which is wrong. No man or woman has control over creation. The only real truth is beyond far gone. Gone, gone, beyond gone, beyond gone to the far shore. The morning star rises just before the dawn, said Osiris. Watching him move with ease, this lord was a great king who had been reborn. Through the journey of being sacrificed, I saw a golden crown resting on his head, and this was the same place where Christ the king once wore a crown of thorns. 
the sacrifice I endured is the way in which the soul is set free. In order to help the world understand creation, I died so that all beings can witness creation's mysteries. The truth was covered by the ignorant, just how lies hide what is real. And all the suffering I endured upon the earth is a method by which our soul comes to heal, said Osiris. He tapped the ankh in my heart, and a moment later Christ the King reappeared. No longer were there holes in his hands and feet, but rather he glowed and emitted light like a mighty and righteous seer. My Lord, tell me what I should believe. Show me the way and explain how truth should be perceived. Truth is one, but paths are many. The source called God is an overflowing cup of potential, and the morning star is the plethora within every individual shared by plenty. Know that love is my religion. Be in the world, but not of it, as our soul is the essence of eternal life. And any church that claims to hold the keys to freedom will answer to me once they die, as I am the guardian of the afterlife, he said. Can you explain the mysteries and tell me how I can repay what this world has put you through? Teach me the way and I will forever follow you. I am the morning star, the sun planted between your eyes, and the way to understand the gift of life is to carry faith in your heart and release it in the moment where the body must die, he said. Christ is the light of the world, and his faith flowed through me. With my eyes set upon his soul, the morning star rose up for all to see. Then without notice, I saw Christ begin to cry. Now the same crowd that betrayed Jesus snuck up behind me and plunged ten swords into my back when my body began to die. I felt loneliness, destruction, and complete ruin as those ten swords were pinned through my spine. I turned my head to meet death when I looked to the horizon as I saw the morning star rising to shine. On my deathbed and alone, something lingered when I understood that we were always whole. Even after my body was useless, my spirit came out from within when I realized the journey is the goal. This was my awakening, and the sun in my head was the enlightened aspect flowing through me. Our spirit is the morning star, and now it was death that finally set me free. I could smile at fear, for death was a cessation of life's suffering and pain. This was the extinction of my ego's grasping, and now I saw how life and death were one in the same. This awakening was the Bodhi, it was the illuminating energy of the great vine, and only after those ten swords were plunged into my back could I see how everything in existence was perfectly aligned. Looking above and below, I saw three important aspects to the nature of this sphere named Tippereth, where Christ was killed. It was the center of equilibrium of the whole tree of life, beginning in the middle of the central pillar. From the point of view of Kether, which was up above, this was the place of God's child, but from the view of earth below, this was the high king, and from the point of view of the transmutation of forces, it is a sacrifice God. On the left stood Bina's pillar of severity, and on the right was Hokma's pillar of mercy. But here in the middle, this central pillar was the central heart of the link that connects consciousness. Again I gazed below and saw how the four lower spheres represented the personality or lower self, while the four sephiroth above were the individuality or higher self, while Kether alone was the divine spark or nucleus 
of manifestation, spreading the Holy Spirit through all. This central sphere was the exact middle, just like the heart, and so I saw it as the Christ center. And it is here that the Christian religion has its focal point. Christianity, as it is a Christian faith, has mystical aspects centering in Kether as well, as this is represented as God the Father, but yet the religion seems to ignore the five holy sephiroth of manifestation. Looking down to where I had not been, I could see a sphere called the Isad, where the deep mysteries were concealed, and so I saw the depiction of the Holy Ghost, which was another aspect of the Christian faith. All in unison on this central pillar, I saw the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as stated in the Christian Church, and that is why Jesus said, Who has seen me hath seen the Father, because Christ is the manifestation of the Divine Source. Tipereth is not only the center of the sacrifice God, but also the center of the inebriating God and the giver of illumination. Dionysus and Osiris are also connected to this aspect at different periods of time throughout history. Illumination then consists of the mind uniting to a higher mode of consciousness beyond which is built up out of sensory experiences. This is when the Eye of Ra, or the Morning Star, is illuminated within our mind and is linked with the Ankh in our heart. In illumination, the mind changes gears, but we cannot depend on the old ways of thinking. If we were to use old ideas of the past, this illumination cannot be translated into terms of finite thought, and so it remains as a flash of light so brilliant that it blinds us, unless we allow new ideas in our minds, which are illuminated by this higher mode of consciousness, our minds are merely overwhelmed and it could throw our mental engine out of gear altogether. This, for the most part, is what so-called illumination amounts to. As the Father has told me, devotion is the most important factor that leads to higher consciousness. It is in this devotion, rising to adoration, where our great work is offered to the Divine, which initiates us into the mysteries of the crucifixion. Looking down beside my Lord's feet, I saw the swords where I bowed in reverence. He reached down and touched the Ankh in my heart, where he transformed yet again. This was no longer the vision of Christ's crucifixion, nor was it Dionysus or Osiris either, but rather a strange man I had never known. He had come from the East, but he was not quite a yogi, and not a holy man either. He might have been a madman, or a soul who had become a great wanderer, and so I watched him arise out of a lotus. Who are you, and what have you come to teach? I am Padmasambhava, the lotus-born master, and I have come to destroy the mistaken teachings around holiness, spirituality, goodness, heaven, godhood, and so forth. What makes teachings untrue is when it is dominated by the belief in an individual self or ego. That belief makes an individual believe that they are practicing goodness, as if the goodness is separated from them. The kingdom of God is within man and so there is no need to look elsewhere for it. You are it, and there is no church that holds the key that can unite yourself with God, but rather the source of creation is within your very being," said Padmasambhava. And this teaching you speak of, what is it called? My teaching is crazy wisdom, as I subdue whoever needs to be subdued, and I destroy whoever needs to be destroyed. The idea here is that whatever your neurosis demands, when you relate with a crazy wisdom person, you get hit back with that. 
crazy wisdom presents you with a mirror reflection, and that is why my crazy wisdom is universal. Crazy wisdom knows no limitation and no logic regarding the form it takes. A mirror will not compromise with you however you look, and the nature of this wisdom is that it knows no limitation and no compromise. The teachings of crazy wisdom is separated into the following manifestations, and I will explain them to you now," said Padmasambhava. Watching while this ancient mad yogi began to dance, I watched as his garments changed. His form was merely an illusion, like various gowns one might change into for different occasions, and so the lotus-born took the shape of a small boy no larger than Dionysus as a young child. First as the lotus king, I manifest as a child. This is my beautiful and infant-like quality, which represents inquisitiveness. It is the nature within us all that wants to explore everything. The way we ask our parents why the sky is blue, why the grass is green, as we must know why, 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 and so on. This is our inner child nature, which is the goodness that exists within all life everywhere. And so this infant quality is the very quality of enlightenment. There is also a quality of fearlessness here. The way a child seems to approach any terrain without a care in the world. If there were honey on a razor blade, this child would be so eager to explore the honey that he or she would lick the blade and soon encounter the blood dripping off his or her tongue at the same time. This is the epitome of non-caring, but at the same time caring so very much, being eager to learn and eager to explore. Mysterious births are often the indication with this child. And so we hear the story of the boy born in the manger among animals, or Dionysus born in his father's thigh, or my story, where I was born upon a lotus. Through this manifestation of the Lotus King, we see how the idea of crazy wisdom is making us relate with our fears. Many people on spiritual pursuits follow a path, where they grow up and advance their teachings to reach an enlightened state. This teaching is concerned with growing up, connecting information, and building yourself up higher and higher to become a great scholar. But here, there is no notion of enlightenment and realization coming about through collecting stuff, but rather it is through purely experiencing life situations as a spontaneously existing infant and being willing to be an infant forever," he said. Looking through the manifestations of Christ, Dionysus, Osiris, and Padmasambhava, I saw how they all contained childlike qualities. Their spirit was that of a young boy contained in a large man's body. The next manifestation is called the holder of the sun, or ray of the sun, and this is connected with the journey. Just like how a youthful child is eager to explore, the child comes to an age and departs from home. Here they become a wanderer, and this is where the discovery of eternity is made, which is connected with a true vision of the facts of life. Pain exists and pleasure exists. It may be difficult to appreciate the negative aspects of the world, yet we learn we can still relate with them. When we relate with the present moment through both the good and bad, we are relating with eternity and become a king or lord of life. This young prince who has fled from the kingdom soon ventures so far they find the charnel ground or graveyard where they explore the truth of life through skeletons, pieces of bodies, wild animals, ravens, jackals, and so forth. Here in the graveyard, the young prince discovers a new approach to life where death is no longer seen as a threat. A realization comes to light that all sorts of experiences simply take place in life, 
and because they happen, we tune into them. This creates a sense of eternity, which brings indestructibility. At this point, having destroyed his or her sense of survival and achieved a sense of eternity, we develop a sense of penetration into the moment. This aspect of the wanderer becomes known as the great yogi who could control time, along with the four seasons, and this is why he is seen holding the sun, using the rays as a tether, he said. I watched him rise to the tip of his toes and bring his hands over his head. Gone, gone, beyond far gone, a morning star rose overhead while his hands held the sun's dawn, having looked into the idea of timelessness or eternity. Next comes the manifestation of the undefeatable lion. This principle is when one has already conquered any sense of gaining anything in the relative world. One has to let go and make a relationship with complete and total sanity, which is the awakened state of mind. Once completed, then comes the utterance of the lion's roar, which refers to the proclamation of ultimate sanity. The lion's roar is not regarded as a challenge, but rather an adornment, a proclaim that we have gained victory, which is that the spiritual journey has been made. There are tricks that exist as a part of the teaching process, and they are known as skillful means. Skillful means are the part of the spiritual tradition because there is a tendency to run away from the sanity of this nature. We find the situation a little claustrophobic. The spiritual journey forces us to confront our neurosis and issues, and rather than relate with the situation as it is, one might go back to bed, and this is a way of relating with the mind's deceptions, which we tend to prefer. Once we are able to relate with the moment and present situation, we develop basic sanity or enlightenment and so comes the next manifestation of the lion's roar. The lion's roar is the ultimate good news as this proclamation manifests as a defender of the faith. The essence of the lion's roar appears as physical changes throughout our world in the form of disasters or plagues in an effort to awaken the heretics along with humanity as a whole, he said. At once a lion roared and the ground of this vision began to quake. At the pinnacle of this teaching, I felt this wisdom stretch so deep that my soul began to shake. This tremor was not meant to cause harm, but rather it came to awaken my soul. Rising out from a deep slumber, I felt the light in my head reaching for my heart, but this connection was not totally full. The next aspect is called Padmasambhava and deals with the discovery on a level of examining knowledge while also dealing with personal experience. Through this process, the knowledge and experience is worked through. It is beaten, burned, and hammered as if working with gold. This would connect us to the ancient practice of alchemy, where the whole thing of life becomes workable. The proper idea of intellectual understanding and sharpening the intellect is not feeding oneself millions of bits of information and making oneself into a walking library, but rather it is connected with developing sharpness and precision and relating with the nature of reality. But this has nothing to do with dwelling on logical conclusions or concepts. One has to have a neutral attitude in one's intellectual study of teaching, one that is neither purely critical nor purely devotional. The purpose of this is to study and observe, rather than to come to conclusions. This means to experience things logically and sensibly. This kind of intellectual study occurs without a watcher. If we watch ourselves learning, watch ourselves growing, developing, becoming more and more scholastic people, then we are comparing ourselves with others. We are constantly gaining weight in our egos because we are competing with ourselves and others. 
Whereas if there is intellectual study going on without a watcher, then it becomes simple and direct. This kind of intellect without a watcher has qualities similar to that of a young youthful prince, he said. As if I was sitting within myself, I began to focus on letting the situation happen to me, and so I let it unfold and occur rather than making conclusions about anything he stated. The next aspect is known as the spiritual teacher. After wandering from place to place, there will come a time to spread the teachings one has found. Since these teachings are gathered from all worlds, it tends to attract quite the attention from other high teachers and priests. From here another manifestation arrives, and this is often the stage where the Lotus King is dismembered, crucified, and is killed before he rises from the dead. The resurrection is then the great miracle and the pinnacle of the teachings itself. This great spiritual teacher does not fuss when the guards arrest him before they throw him into the fire, so to speak. But rather, this great master agrees and says, I will go on with this. And so he lets his actions speak louder than words. This is profound as the teacher acknowledges him or herself as the criminal. They allow themselves to be executed as a criminal. But then something changes. Suppose we decide to take the whole thing on ourselves and let ourselves be blamed. Then what would happen? It would be very interesting to find out. This is the aspect of the Son of God who is sacrificed and rises from the dead, he said. Again, I picture the passion of Christ, the day Dionysus died, and I could see that it was the ultimate expression of faith and creation. Churches have come and gone to use the Lord as the pinnacle of their teachings, but the death and resurrection was the teaching of creation, not of an individual church. The last manifestation is the absolute manifestation of crazy wisdom. It is the most wrathful expression, and the idea of this lineage of teachings is associated with the transmission of the message, which means energy or grace. In other words, crazy wisdom is a continual energy that flows, and that, as it flows, regenerates itself. The only way to regenerate this energy is by radiating or communicating it, by putting it into practice or acting it out. It is unlike other energies, which, when you use them, move toward cessation or extinction. The energy of crazy wisdom regenerates itself through the process of our living. As you live this energy, it regenerates itself. You don't live for death, but you live for birth. Living is a constant birth process rather than a wearing out process. The first way this energy is transferred is by word of mouth using ideas and concepts. In some sense, this is a crude or primitive method. It is possible to use words, terms, images, and ideas as though they were an absolute perfect means of transmission. The procedure is to present an idea, then the contradiction of the idea, and then to associate the idea with an authentic scripture or teaching that has been given in the past. Bringing in the sacredness of certain things on a primitive level is the first step in transmission. Traditionally, scriptures or holy books are not to be trodden upon, sat upon, were otherwise mistreated because very powerful things are said in them. The second style of communication is the method of crazy wisdom on the relative level. Here you communicate by creating incidents that seem to happen by themselves. Such incidences are seemingly blameless, but they do seem to have an instigator somewhere. In other words, the teacher tunes himself or herself into the cosmic energy or whatever you would like to call it. Then, if there is need to create chaos, he or she directs his attention towards chaos, and quite appropriately, 
chaos presents itself, as if it happened by accident or mistake. The sense of this crazy wisdom does not speak or teach on the ordinary level, but rather he or she creates a symbol or means. A symbol in this case is not something that stands for something else, but it is something that presents the living quality of life and creates a message out of it. The third way of transmission is thought lineage or mind lineage. Here the communication is neither words nor symbols, rather just by being. A sense of precision is communicated. Maybe it takes the form of waiting for nothing. Maybe it takes pretending to meditate together, but not doing anything. For that matter, it might involve having a very casual relationship, discussing the weather and the flavor of tea, how to make curry, chop suey, or pizza. It could be talking about history or the history of the neighbors or whatever. It has a very extraordinarily ordinary quality to it. The whole thing is not as outrageous as it may seem. Nevertheless, there is an undercurrent of taking advantage of the mischievousness of reality, and this creates a sense of craziness, or a sense that something or other is not too solid. Your sense of security is under attack, so the recipient of crazy wisdom should feel extremely insecure and threatened. That way, you manufacture half of the crazy wisdom, and the teacher manufactures the other half. Both the teacher and the student are alarmed by the situation. Your mind has nothing to work on, and suddenly a gap has been created. Bewilderment. This abrupt gap cuts through your unconscious gossip, creating bewilderment. This crazy wisdom is not reasonable, but somewhat heavy-handed, because wisdom does not permit compromise. If you compromise between black and white, you come out with a grayish color. It is a sad medium rather than a happy medium. Disappointment. This style of crazy wisdom is to build up your ego to the level of absurdity, to the point of comedy, to the point that is bizarre, and then suddenly let you go. So you have a big fall, like Humpty Dumpty. One of the expressions of crazy wisdom is that you can't get away from it. It's everywhere, whatever it is. Another expression of crazy wisdom is controlling psychic energies. The way to control psychic energies is not to create a greater psychic energy and try to dominate them. That just escalates the war, and it becomes too expensive, like the Vietnam War. The way to control psychic energy of primitive beliefs is to instigate chaos. Introduce confusion among those energies, and confuse people's logic. Confuse them so they have to think twice. That is what all aspects of the sphere of Tifereth represent. Dionysus was an inebriated god dancing with divine madness. Christ was a crucified outcast who was born a Jew and grew up in Egypt that went on to find union with the Holy Spirit, while Padmasambhava was half Indian, half Tibetan, and dressed up as a madman. He was neither a warrior nor a king, but certainly not an ordinary person. But how can one make sense of all this? Is it just a story, a dream, or is everything you said real and just as it seems? The key to this crazy wisdom is the mystical marriage and how I ride upon a pregnant tigress. This is critical because this tigress is the feminine principle or divine energy which connects the heart back to the cosmic mother of all. In essence, this divine union is what allowed me to come back from the dead. And so we should examine the mysteries of Osiris, Dionysus, and Christ. How they too were able to die and be reborn. How were they able to elevate their consciousness? How is it that one creates miracles? Who is it that has called you to link heaven and earth? Wasn't there a feline that told you to carry a sword and protect our heart? 
The thought of Bast flashed through my mind. Padmasambhava touched the center of my heart when the essence of the entire sacrifice sun reappeared, and so he spoke. I would be very careful if I was a church. The point of faith is not about absolute control, and if any church attempts domination, the lion's roar will shake the depths of every mortal soul. If any church believes it holds the power, just wait until the real holy war begins. Righteousness is a clean cut, deadly to a foundation of religion whose hidden intention is to win. What would Jesus do? Hasn't Christ already given up his body for the cause? The Holy Spirit knows no church, and her holy blade will not obey mankind's laws.